When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. This is the Project Dublin Podcast, presented by Onyx Hunt. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome to the show for episode number 72. Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Normally, this is where I would give you our promo code for the Project Dublin Podcast for Onyx Hunt, but instead, this week, I'm going to defer to our friends at the Rough Grouse and American Woodcock Society. They're doing a membership campaign right now. If you're interested in trying Onyx Hunt, go over to roughgrousesociety.org, check the blog, and look for the post about the Rough Grouse Society and Onyx Hunt. Sign up for Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society today. You get a free 12-month subscription to Onyx Hunt. Two birds with one stone. 
puns intended everywhere, all over that thing. Go check it out. Sign up for Onyx and RGS and AWS, and you'll be supporting two awesome organizations. All right, this episode of the podcast is also brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, the finest rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience located in northern Minnesota. You haven't experienced grouse camp until you've experienced it at Pine Ridge. Find out more about it at pineridgegrousecamp.com. And by Dogtra Collars. For over 30 years, Dogtra has collaborated with industry professionals to create class-leading tools for e-collar training, GPS tracking, and more to support bird dog owners in developing top-notch dogs. Find out more about Dogtra Collars and all of their products by visiting dogtra.com. And by Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food. Out in the field, how you prepare determines how you'll perform. With balanced fat and protein to support peak condition in your bird dog, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food enhances strength, energy, and endurance. So when that tailgate finally drops, you and your dogs are ready for anything. Strong, focused, ready for anything. That is a Yukonuba dog. And by Gumleaf USA handcrafted premium high quality rubber boots made in europe imported to the usa by gumleaf usa our friend jack butler these are my go-to boots in the grouse covers if there is a hint of moisture in the air i'm strapping the gumleaf boots on which is basically every day in the grouse woods head over to gumleafusa.com and use the promo code pup10 that's pup10 that'll save you 10 percent on your purchase at gumleafusa.com and by Gordian Sons Outfitters, when your boots have the proper tread, you never notice how slippery it is. When your hunting jacket features the right liner, your body temperature won't enter your mind. And when your shooting vest allows total freedom of movement, you won't think twice about swinging through that quail. At Gordian Sons, they want you to focus solely on the hunt, not the performance of your gear. That's why the Gordy family has personally curated the best-in-class gear from around the globe for their store. Find out more about the gear, the guides, the expertise, all of it, GordianSons.com. And finally, by Dakota 283 Kennels. Kennels built to last a lifetime. Head over to Dakota283.com and check it out this week. As of a week or so ago, Dakota 283 has altered their pricing structure, bringing the prices of all their kennels down significantly in most cases. You will pay for shipping now. However, the decrease in price is significant enough where you're going to be saving money on these kennels. So if you looked at the Dakota 283 kennels before and you thought, eh, it's a little bit out of my price range, head over to Dakota283.com, check it out. They lower the prices on all the kennels. You might be surprised. Dakota283.com. All right, this week's winner of the Project Upland podcast giveaway is my friend, Heather Shaw, who some of you may know as the Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society biologist in Michigan, Ohio, surrounding area. Heather shared one of our podcast episodes recently, and in continuing with the Rough Grouse Society, American Woodcock Society theme this week, we're going to reward Heather with a Project Upland t-shirt. So thank you, Heather, and thanks to everybody listening and participating. You could be next week's winner of the podcast giveaway. All you got to do is make a meaningful contribution to the show. Leave us a rating, leave the podcast a review, subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast, send us a feedback or a guest suggestion. We'd love to hear from the listeners. Email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, we are going to quickly move on to today's episode, but I got two quick things for you. Number one, again, rounding out the Rough Grouse Society, American Woodcock Society theme this week. If you haven't heard about the Grouse Camp event in Eagle River, Wisconsin, you want to check it out. Go to the Rough Grouse Society blog at roughgrousesociety.org. Look for the post pinned to the top of the page. Join us at Grouse Camp. You can read all about the camp. It's going to be awesome. Ron Bain from the Honey Dog Podcast is going to be there. You don't want to miss it. 
you want to learn more about rough grouse and woodcock hunting, hunt some of the best rough grouse and woodcock cover in the country, and meet a whole bunch of cool people, like-minded folks, bird hunters. Check it out, Grouse Camp. And if you want to go for free, now is your chance. Rough Grouse Society is doing a video contest. All you got to do is record a short video of yourself, 30 to 60 seconds. You can post it, share it on social media, or if you're too shy, too bashful, you can send it directly to RGS for your chance to win a free registration, which is event registration, some meals. It's not lodging, but it's a big chunk of the cost, and you can win it for free by entering their video contest. Check it out, roughgrousesociety.org on the blog. All right, finally, before we hit the episode, I'm going to continue to tease the major project announcement that we have not announced yet, but we are going to very soon. I think I told you last week, it involves an awesome partner, an organization that we are very excited to work with. And I think you'll be excited when you hear about it as well. Here's all I'm going to tell you this week. It's got a little something to do with grouse hunting. I'm not saying what species of grouse. I'm not saying where. I'm just telling you, I think from what I've heard, This project is going to have a little something to do with grouse hunting, and I think it's going to appeal to a mass audience of bird hunters. Stay tuned. More to come. All right, here we go. Today's episode, we welcome bird dog trainer and bird hunter for over 30 years, Craig Doherty of Wild Apple Kennels in New Hampshire. Craig has been a regular columnist in Pointing Dog Journal for quite some time. If you read that magazine, you'll be familiar with his work. Craig recently released a book called Building a Grouse Dog. He graciously sent me a copy. I read it, very much enjoyed it. This book is very appealing to a rough grouse hunter, specifically pointing dog owners, but there is a lot more in the book that applies across the board. Craig and I talk about a lot of it today. Craig is a knowledgeable guy. He generously shared his time with us on the Project Upland podcast. I'm certain you will learn something today about grouse and grouse dogs. And if you are interested at all, please, please support Craig Doherty and his book and go to wildapplekennel.com. Links in the show notes. Buy a copy of his book. You won't regret it. Let's welcome to the Project Upland podcast of Wild Apple Kennel and author of Building a Grouse Dog, Craig Doherty. All right, Craig, welcome to the Project Upland Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. It's my pleasure, Craig. I'm really glad you were able to join us for this episode of the podcast. We've got plenty to talk about, including your new book, which we will get to. But first, let's introduce Craig Doherty to the Project Upland audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of where you're from, mainly the kennel, and uh, we will get into we'll get into the book a little bit later. Sure. I started out in as an educator, a teacher, and live in grouse country in northern New Hampshire and got hooked up with some dog guys and got a Brittany and then some setters and then got involved in pointers and competition. And over 30 years, it seemed like uh, my writing ability and my uh, love of dogs and field trials and grouse and woodcock hunting sort of all came together. And here at the end, uh, 30 years later, I, I put it all in a book. So been an interesting journey, and uh, uh, once I retired from teaching, I started training dogs for other people and and guiding um, bird hunters. So um, I've looked at the sport from a, a lot of different perspectives at, at this point. Thirty years is quite a while to have spent in the grouse woods with bird dogs. I mean, that's a lot of experience to draw on. It's very evident in your book. I have read it. You generously sent me a copy of it, and I appreciate that. You know, it's kind of interesting. This isn't 
new, but there's definitely there's something to the former school teacher slash college professor that turns into a, a a bird hunter and beyond that a writer. You know, you're you're one I can think of. I think Tom Hugler was a teacher. I think of a guy over my way, Mark Parman, was a college professor, and I think he was an English professor. Certainly, the writing and stuff goes hand in hand. I, you might be able to think of a few more. It's what is what is there to that, Greg? <laughs> Uh, it's just a normal extension of 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 being somebody who who uh, is used to expressing their ideas and their views and uh, yeah uh, you know we spent all those years getting degrees and grading other people's papers so uh, it's sort of a logical extension to to be doing it doing it yourself. Somebody once said uh, every frustrated uh, every English teacher is a frustrated writer so uh, <laughs> there may be truth to that. Yeah, and summers off you know, probably are helpful for training bird dogs too. Yeah. Yeah. It always was. <laughs> it always was. Yeah. And, uh, you know, where I lived, um, when I taught high school, I was out of the door at two thirty, and I was into the grouse woods at three o'clock every afternoon during season. So, uh, you know, I'd go all fall and not miss a day in the woods. That is certainly yeah. conducive to the schedule of a bird hunter. A lot has been said about the best time of day to hunt grouse. I think a lot of people agree that if they had a few hours to hunt grouse, they would probably take those last few hours of the day. Do you have an opinion on that, Craig? Yeah, it's it's the first few and the last few. I mean, sure. uh, uh, when we used to hunt in Texas, uh, we'd get up early and get out and get the cubbies after they've come off the roost, and then uh, we'd go to town and have a real leisurely lunch and uh, uh, maybe a nap, and then get back at it late in the day because... You know, I, all the game birds seem to have that same cycle. They need to feed early in the morning because they've they've been on the roost all night, and then uh, they have to feed late in the day because they're going back on the roost for the night. So uh, if their crops aren't full uh, at the end of the day, they're and it gets cold, then then we're looking at stress for the birds. So you know, there, there's a, a biological reason for that that cycle of activity. In the middle part of the day, their crops are full and they can just, you know, lounge around someplace. Yeah, definitely. You touched on a little bit of your introduction to hunting and you write about it in the book as well. Am I getting the sense that you were not a bird hunter from a very young age? You picked it up later in life or is that not correct? Well, I was, I don't know how you want to categorize my early hunting, bird hunting experience, but uh, you know, I was a teenager in southwestern Maine with a pickup truck and a shotgun. And uh, you know, around here, the way you hunt at that age is you uh, you ride the roads. Sounds and, like uh, you and I had a lot in common when we were younger, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, and we used to we used to do walk up you know walk snow machine trails and things like that yep. uh, without yep. dogs. But once you get committed to the dogs, it changes everything and becomes a whole different experience. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's interesting to to hear that a little bit about your background because that is a very similar story to mine. And I've talked about it on this podcast before. I grew up a dogless partridge hunter, if you will. You know, lots of walking and driving around looking for birds. I mean, that's that's the way we did it. But once the dogs come along, like you said, it definitely changes things. And that led into your career as a breeder, trainer, guide. The operation today, you have your own kennel. You guide, you spend some time up north, you also head to the south, right? I go to Kentucky in the winter. Okay. Um, my daughter lives down there and uh, very conveniently has an apartment in her in her basement. And my wife and I go down there and 
take care of her granddaughter and I take a bunch of dogs with me and I have a friend of theirs who's a farmer that's got 400 acres and I keep the dogs there and get to work them there and then uh, very nearby are the the uh, Miller Welch um, Wildlife Management Area in Kentucky which is the major central Kentucky field trial grounds and I can train there a few days a week as well so it's just sort of worked out to be it's a lot better than staying home and shuffling snow you got that right (laughs) all right real quick on the dogs craig before we transition into specifically the book there was a recent two-part series on bird dogs afield which is hosted by paul fuller a recent guest of the project Upland podcast so listeners will be very familiar with paul his story and his show and he just put out a couple of videos within the last month or so that he came up to your kennel and did some filming, saw some dogs work, and you talked a lot about the breed, specifically LHU pointers, the history, the background. First of all, I want to encourage people to check out that two-part series because it's informative and it goes into more detail than we can go into here today. But talk a little bit about your dog specifically and give people a taste of, kind of like you did on Paul's show without going into so much detail, LHU pointers a little bit of the history, where they're at today, and kind of how it's intertwined in your kennel. Well, I, yeah, <laughs> intertwined is not even the, the right word. Our, <laughs> our, our, our dogs today are, are either all LU or are in a large part, a high percentage of their, their bloodline is, is LU. And, okay. and I got introduced to that back in the late 90s at field trials, uh, seeing the, LHU dogs that were performing at the highest levels in cover dog trials at the time. Bob Whaley, the owner of LHU Kennels, Whaley is, uh, LHU is his last name spelled backwards, um, realized that to continue to expand his kennel and sell dogs to <coughs> hunters, he had to prove them in trials. He'd always, always been a trialer and he moved into later in life, uh, supporting the the Grouse and Woodcock trials, and there were a number of guys running his dogs at the time, and that's, and I had, I had setters prior to that, and I watched their dogs and got real excited by them. They're so athletic and, and, um, and, you know, just beautiful dogs that, uh, I eventually, they arranged for me to get a dog from Bob. He gave me my first LHU dog, and we bred her to another dog that was, uh, half LHU and ended up with, uh, two national grouse champions out of the litter. So it was a pretty, pretty rapid rise for our breeding program to, to have a dog directly from, from Bob and then breed to a, a young dog that, that was a, a real phenom. And, uh, those two dogs, Wild Applejack and Autumn Moon out of that first litter was, <coughs> excuse me, pretty impressive. But most of the dogs here, uh, today are, even my customer dogs are very heavily LU bred. Uh, I, I, there's 18 dogs here right now. There's one setter, and all the rest of them are LU to uh, a lesser or greater degree. So we're we're pretty well committed to the line, and the the things that attract me to the to that line of of pointers is is their intelligence foremost, and then their athleticism and their biddability, they're, they're wanting to take training and do what you want them to do is, uh, it, it's really hard to, to match in any other line of pointers. Yeah. And those are things that you do talk about again at length in the videos with Paul bird dogs afield, and you can see the dogs work. 
Uh, it's again, I encourage people to check it out. I will, I will include the links in the show notes so they can go look at that. And if they have additional questions about L Hughes and your dogs, they can definitely get in touch with you. You got to answer something for me. So when I was talking to Paul and I had come across this recently, I've started, I don't know if it's a recent thing or not, but the whole English pointer versus just calling them a pointer, which I understand it that, you know, there is the pointer is a pointer. We don't need to call it an English pointer, but then you got the whole English setter. (laughs) Explain that to me, Craig, and where do you, where do you fall on things? Well, it's, it's not even a question of where I fall. It's a question of where the registry falls. Okay. So, so our pointers are registered with the field dog stud book. And I don't even know how long ago it was. They dropped the English from the pointer because our pointers are no longer English pointers. Okay. Uh, there are other dogs that are English pointers. Ah. Uh, if you go online and Google English pointers, you will see a heavier dog, a lower tail dog, and a more classic uh, level tail dog, um, a, a more jowly face and blockier head, uh, and a bigger dog. So those are the, the those English pointers still exist. The AKC registers uh, English pointers, and those dogs are shown on the AKC show circuit. Our dogs are what has developed from the American field trial community breeding pointers to be competitive in a variety of different venues. So uh, it was just a, a logical thing. It's like the AKC dropped the Spaniel from the Brittany. Right. Um, they're no longer called Brittany Spaniels. They're just Brittany's. And, you know, but if you go get a French Brittany, and, and I don't, I can't speak French, but their name is, is, uh, Emmanuel Breton. Yeah, there you go. You can speak French. <laughs> Only because we were advertising for Trinity Kennels, who breeds Emmanuel Breton. So I had to practice that a few times. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you did it well. I'm yeah. impressed. Um, I wasn't even going to try. But so, so those, those dogs are still, highly closely related to their English or their, their French cousins. And the, the English pointers are still highly related to their English relatives where the pointers registered primarily in the field dog stud book. Um, like my dogs, you have to go back a hundred and plus years to find any English connection. So it seemed logical to, to drop it and just call them pointers. Okay. It's not necessarily up for debate. It's just that's the way that things are. Now, this I don't want to go down this wormhole, but setters are kind of a different story entirely with the different the variations in setters. But you typically hear people refer to setters as English setters. Has the same thing not happened there where there's a setter and then there's an English setter, to your knowledge? I, I think that the field still registers them as English setters. Okay. And I think that's uh, as much to differentiate them from... Llewellyn's and sure. uh, Gordon and Gordon's and uh, the old Hemlock lines, red and, uh, setters. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, there's all the different color variations, but there's also you know a, a number of setter lines that are those big. I have one here, uh, or I've traded in the past. That was a. I think there's a picture of her in the book. She's a black and white dog. You know, she came from Decoverly Kennel, and she probably weighs seventy five pounds. Sure. Uh, and my biggest pointer is just over fifty. So that, you know, there's a there's a lot of a lot more variation in in the setters than than there is in the in the pointer world. 
Well, anyways, that's enough of that. I appreciate your insight on it, Craig. Let's talk about the book. I've got it here in front of me. It really hasn't left my desk for the last couple of months, mainly because I've been reading, you know, working my way through it, but also it looks good on my desk. I like it there. So uh, building a grouse dog from puppy to polished performer. Talk about the book. How did it, how were you inspired to write it? And what was the process like a little bit? Well, let me just preface this by saying that I'm a professional writer. I, I This is my 50th book. 50th um, book. Wow. None of the other books have anything to do with dogs. but So I, I do a lot of writing. And, and as you are probably aware, I'm a regular contributor to Pointing Dog Journal. Yep. I had a long freelance career when I was uh, teaching and, and wrote for uh, a number of different sporting magazines and fishing magazines and things like that. <laughs> so writing is something that I do regularly. And if you're a professional writer, you tend to to look for opportunities from publishers rather than, you know, the thing nowadays is, is, is self-publishing and it's easy, it's seamless. You write a book, you send the file to somebody and they'll either print it on demand or turn it into an ebook or whatever you want. <laughs> in my case, it's a little different. I probably wouldn't invest in a book that way. Um, a lot of those books are sort of, I don't want to be demeaning, but, uh, you know, they're people's egos. They, they want to tell their story and, sure. Um, sure. you know, they're not well edited. They're not necessarily well written and, and that sort of thing. So I was contacted by Chuck Johnson, who also writes for Pointing Guard Journal. He's a versatile dog guy. And Chuck uh, had talked with Steve Smith, who was then the editor uh, at Pointing Dog Journal, about this idea of doing a, a dog training book specifically for grouse dogs. And uh, they got to talking about who who would be the person to write it, and Steve suggested me. So Chuck called me, and I wasn't really looking for a project at the time, but uh, I gave it a lot of thought, and we talked it over, and uh, it seemed kind of a logical extension of what I'd been doing for the last 30 years. So I agreed to do it for him and, uh, you know, we hammered out an outline and it really came together when I came up with the concept of building a grouse dog as opposed to training a grouse dog. It's a subtle distinction, but as I say in the book, you know, if you're going to build a house, you don't just start hammering nails. You have a plan and, and you know what the house is going to look like when you're done and you really need to do the same thing with a dog. You have to have a certain expectation, a certain vision. That was one of Bob Whaley's most important uh, attributes was he had a vision of what his dogs were going to look like and what they were going to do, and, and he stayed true to that every time he bred a dog. So when you train a dog, you need that same idea of what your finished dog is going to do and be like and how it's going to attack the cover and, and hunt for you. And and if you think about it as an end goal in mind, I think you're going to, you're going to have a different sense of all those little steps that you have to do to get there. And so that's when the project really got going for me is when, when I figured that part of it out and rather than, you know, just writing another training book, we were writing a, a blueprint for, for making a grouse dog. Yeah. Well, that theme was definitely evident during my reading of the book, I wrote it down here. Actually, this is straight out of my notes. I, one of my notes is when training, we always have an eye on the end game, which is, and then it's quote, to have a grouse dog that wants to be with you 
listens and complies when given a command, and attacks the cover with gusto in search of birds. So those are your words, Craig. Exactly right. Yeah, that, that's that's the you distilled it perfectly. And you know, and and what that's going to be is going to vary from dog to dog a little bit. It's going to vary a little bit from breed to breed. You know, different breeds and different dogs have different ways of going and and different different drive and different athleticism and things like that. And and you know, the natural range of a dog is going to is going to be different as well. And so, you know, you have to have, you can't take, uh, you know, go down and see Farrell Miller in Kentucky and, and buy an all-age pointer and expect it to be a 25-yard dog in Minnesota. It's just not going to work. It's like saying, I'm going to build a house and I'm going to use all 8 by 12 lumber and I've got a really good handsaw that I'm going to cut it all with. It just, you know, you have to have realistic goals as well. Yeah. Um, and as I also say in the book, we make our decisions about breeds emotionally and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that once you make that decision, if you, you know, if you say, I want a Gordon center or I want a, you know, I want a, a French Brittany or, or whatever, then, then you have to do the homework and find somebody that, that's breeding in that breed dogs that are going to do what you want them to do. Not that you should exclude them because they're, they're different, but you should, there's plenty of guys in the woods with those other breeds as well. It's not just all pointers and setters. It's just, that's what I ended up involved with. Yeah. I think that's a good, this is a good time to make the distinction that the title of your book is Building a Grouse Dog. And I think most listeners would have gathered by now or would gather, because it's pretty common that really, if you had more space in the cover, you might've said building a roughed grouse dog, because that's what you're talking about when you say grouse dog. Certainly these concepts apply beyond the roughed grouse. And and I guess that is what you mean, right, Craig? Definitely. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, that's what I hunt. I hunt rough grouse and woodcock, right. and that's what we talked about in the book. <clears throat> and that was, that was the focus the publisher wanted. And so, you know, that's, that's what we do. We're already talking about a, a second book, which would have a little broader focus and, and maybe be called Building a Better Bird Dog. Because really, the until you get to the specific chapters about going in the woods and looking for cover and, you know, and that sort of stuff, all of that early development would apply to any bird dog. And uh, if you're going to hunt prairie birds or you're going to hunt quail in Texas or you're going to hunt whatever, there's some basic underlying principles that are going to make the whole process more enjoyable for you and for the dog, you know, if you, if you lay the foundation properly. Yeah, absolutely. And that is, that is definitely my experience from reading the book. There's a lot of stuff in here that I think would apply, you know, given that my experience is very heavily in the rough grouse and woodcock woods, this book is of high interest to me because it's right in my wheelhouse, but certainly one of the things I really like about your methodologies, and I've read about them in Pointing Dog Journal, you know, I've always enjoyed your your columns there. You approach things from a matter of simplicity and minimalism. You know, there's no, there's really no gimmicks. There's nothing, there, anything that's unnecessary has kind of been stripped down. You strip it down to the basics, the fundamentals, and even so far as to, you know, you really keyed in on a type of dog that allows you to train that way. So that's something to consider as well. But it's building, like you said, the foundation with simple steps, simple progressions, and you really hit on that 
throughout the book. I, I don't want to let a secret uh, out of the bag here, but um, <laughs> my dogs make me look good, not the other way around. And, you know, I've trained, uh, since I've been training for the public, I've had uh, short hairs and golden setters and red setters and other types of setters and uh, French Britneys and Britneys and German dogs and Brock de Francais and and these methods work with all of them. It's just with some of them, it's more, it takes more effort than with others. You know, I think I talked in there one time about one short hair I had that I, I swear the dog wanted to kill my pigeon releasers. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, I finally had to, to get the dog to point, I basically had to woe break him at the same time, I was finally getting him to stop. And and so, you know, we did it all in one quick process because I couldn't get him to stop otherwise. Um, you know, I don't, it didn't matter how many times I popped the trap before he could get to it. He still wanted to get to it. So, you know, I mean, the dogs that are in that book, uh, that litter of puppies, um, I, there's four of them here right now. They're two years old now. And they're still doing the same thing. They're just great to work with and, you know, want to find wild birds and, and want to please. And, and they all run great and look great. So, yeah, they, they make me look good. Yeah, absolutely. One more distinction that we should make, which I think, again, people probably have gathered from listening to our conversation thus far. But the book is written from the perspective of a pointing dog trainer. So again, that's not necessarily in the title, but you're talking about pointing dogs, hunting rough grouse. And again, the same thing applies. There are many concepts, principles, fundamentals in here that apply across the board. And there's there's a lot of information about hunting grouse and woodcock, hunting rough grouse and woodcock, which I really enjoy. And there's stuff about traveling with dogs and first aid. There's a lot of stuff in here that regardless of breed, species, location, it applies across the board. But again, this is a book written specifically for rough grouse pointing dogs. Yeah. Somebody, uh, somebody when the book first came out said, uh, would this book help me with my flushing dog? And I said, I could put everything I know about flushing dogs in one 183-character tweet. Uh, <laughs> oh, probably not the book you want to buy. <laughs> Good stuff. All right, well, let's move on a little bit. We're going to attempt to kind of skim across some of the chapters. There are, I think, 14 chapters in the book. I took notes on all of them. I've got some highlighted stuff here, things that I'm going to selfishly use this opportunity to ask you questions about and get some clarification. But, uh, of course, I'm certain the listeners will have some of the same questions. So chapter one is right there at the beginning, picking a puppy, which is of high importance for anybody that's looking at their first dog or their second dog. And, you know, you go into, you talk about, Basically, like we just talked about a few minutes ago, how, you know, a lot of different breeds can be rough grouse dogs. You happen to have pointers and they are kind of the star of the show in this book. But these concepts and methodologies apply across the board for the most part. Talk a little bit about picking a puppy, locating a breeder, kind of hit the high notes for us, Craig. Sure. I I compete with my dogs. So I put my dogs out in the public view. You can see them run against other dogs. You can read about them in in the American field, which prints the results of the trials. So so I feel that, you know, as a breeder, um, my dogs have to get out there and, and prove in a in 
a wider venue of what they are capable of doing. I also guide with my dogs. So, and people say, how can you guide with a field trial dog? Well, you know, they, they know the difference. And, you know, we're proving them in that respect, too. I mean, we're putting birds in front of the gun for a wide cross-section of, of customers and that way. So if you're going to look for a breeder, you probably don't want to go to Georgia to get your grouse dog. Not that they you, you couldn't get a good grouse dog in Georgia. It's just you're more likely to get one in Minnesota or Wisconsin or Michigan or the Northeast because that's what we do. So the first thing, you know, I would I would tell anybody is if you're if you're going to get a puppy and you want to get a puppy from a breeder, you want to get one from a breeder who does with his dogs or her dogs what you're planning to do with the puppy. And in this case we're talking about grouse hunting, so <laughs> even if it's somebody who doesn't um doesn't compete like I do, you want to have somebody that has proven that their dogs are capable of being high-end grouse dogs. And so that's the first criteria. The other thing I talk about is how do you pick the actual puppy? You know, some people say, oh, just reach in the whelping box and grab one. And some people suggest that, you know, you sit down on, on the lawn one time and whichever one comes and crawls in your lap is the one you want. Well, those things I don't think are based in any credible factual basis. The puppy that comes and crawls in your lap is probably the one that ran around the hardest and now is the first one to get tired. And I'm not sure that's the puppy you want. When I raise a litter, I'm sitting in my office right now and there's a, a table in my office that a whelping box sits under. And that's where all the puppies that we raise are born. And, uh, you know, I watch them daily. I just sit here and watch them in the, in the box with their mother. And, you know, you start seeing from, from a few weeks old on differences in the puppy. And, you know, I pay attention to those differences and I pay attention over a number of breedings and I can start predicting what those differences are going to, what that's going to mean later on. So I can tell a lot about a puppy because I see it every day, all day long. And if you came to me for a puppy, we'd talk about sex, we'd talk about color, we'd talk about those sorts of things. But I'd try to convince you to let me pick you a puppy because I'm the one who's going to be able to tell the differences in those puppies and based on what you're going to do. If I would quiz you about what you wanted, uh, what your plans were, yeah. uh, get a sense of what your experience with, with dogs is, and, and match you up with a puppy. And the longer you let me keep the puppy, the better job I'm going to do of, of matching it. Like the puppies in the book, I had five owners six owners who let me keep the puppies uh, from March when they were born until September before we made the final selection. And, you know, over the summer I was able to sort it out and and everybody's very happy with, with the puppy they got. So, you know, the, the guy who says, I want you to pick the dog up at seven weeks, I don't want to see it after that. Um, it's probably not the guy, the best match for you. If you, if somebody says, you know, if, if I could keep the puppies till they're 12 or 16 weeks old, I can do a better job of matching. That's somebody who really cares about getting the right puppy with the right person, from my experience. Sure. That's an interesting point. It's a good point, and it makes sense just based on the fact that, you know, keeping the puppies longer is more work for that breeder, and I think that's a really good point for people is once you've done the work and you've selected a good 
breed or that you're very comfortable with, I mean, certainly just open yourself up to that person and try to absorb as much knowledge as you can, because you've been doing this for 30 years. There are plenty of breeders that have been doing the same and people like myself can learn a lot from, from your experience. So that's a, that's a big one. I also think the guiding thing is, is pretty interesting because talk about an opportunity to see some dogs work. You know, if you have a, if you know a breeder that is also a grouse guide and you're planning ahead far enough, which hopefully you are about getting a puppy, it would be great for somebody to spend a day with you in the fall and they could see your dogs work. Wouldn't it? Yeah. If they could get one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm booked pretty solid. I, I, I don't. I've never advertised my guide business. I do have a brief page on my on my web page about the guiding, but I have never run an ad or solicited clients for my guide business. And I I turn people away in droves. There's just not that many people doing it in our area. And uh, I I know two other grouse guides, and they're pretty much as booked as I am. You know. And I have two calls last week. It's August, and people are looking, you know, uh, I say, gee, I'd really like a, a weekend in October. And my response is, would you really want to hunt with me in a weekend this October if I still didn't, if I hadn't been able to book it yet? Um, so, <laughs> you know, it's it's a pretty rare commodity, and it's, it's in high demand. Uh, you know, and if it was somebody, on the other hand, if it was someone that was, you know, truly interested in puppy and wanted to see the dogs, we'd figure out a way to get them to do that, whether it was during the training season or, you know, later in the season when I'm, when the demand is as high. Sure. One other thing before we move on from that chapter is you talk about sort of the ideal age for a puppy. And I have in parentheses here in my notes, I mean, knowing that the buyer, the puppy buyer is not going to have a ton of control about this, you know, the ideal age and how the puppy approaches its first season and how old it is. But given the choice between two litters with all else being equal, let's just, I just wanted to talk about that ideal age because it's kind of interesting. And essentially you want the puppy to be as old as it can possibly be before it hits that first season, right? Yeah. See, we have a unique situation in the American field uh, as far as our competitive dog. We want a dog that is born as close to the after the first of the year as possible, because then they get to be as old as possible for their puppy in derby season, their first two competitive years. Right. If I didn't compete, I wouldn't be shooting for those January puppies. I'd be looking to get puppies born late fall, so that come spring they're four months old and I can get them out on you know start. I'd start getting them out on on flight birds. Um, sure. Spring. And then um, you can you know if they're Six, eight months old, nine months old come summer, which is our primary training season. I can do more with that dog than I can with a dog that was born in April. Got it. Um, you know, it's just you can do more with the older dog. And then when it comes time for the season, your expectations can be a lot higher for that dog that's, you know, pushing a year rather than that dog that's pushing half a year. And, and it's all about experience. The more experience you can get the dog, it's a, it's like the reverse catch twenty two. The more birds he finds, the more birds he's going to find. You know, it's just they've learned so experientially that if you can take a dog out and have him find five woodcock one day, he's going to look in five similar places the next day because that experience taught him that there were woodcock in those particular kinds of places. 
And the same is true with grouse, and the same is true with every bird that we hunt. They're in specific places in the habitat. They're not just anywhere. And the dogs learn that. I train in, in some very similar covers, uh, or, or the same covers, you know, I rotate. Every third or fourth day, I'm back in one of my training covers. And this morning, I had all my three shooting dogs with me. And I found double the birds that I find with my young dogs. So it's just, you know, they have the experience. Yep. They know where to look. They were, they were four, five, and eight years old. So it's not that those birds suddenly appeared. It's that these dogs knew how to dig them out and did. All right. Well, moving on from chapter one, again, we're not going to cover every single chapter here. In this book, it is in a very logical, sequential order. It's going to walk the person through right from buying a puppy to the early obedience training, introductory yard work, all of that stuff, intro to birds, intro to guns. One thing I pulled out of chapter three, which I think I have found to be very important, and it's a challenging thing to do because it kind of goes against human nature, but that is to always remember the importance of your reaction as the trainer, which really should be minimal to non-existent most of the time. And again, that kind of goes against human nature. You know, we get a person like myself, I get excited. I get, you know, I start wondering what's going on and you could get aggravated, all of that stuff. And I think the best trainers that I've come across, they're always so patient and so even keeled. And that just seems to be really important. Yes, it is. And, uh, I'm like the king of the anecdote, um, but uh, I had somebody come over to, to visit the other day who's looking to uh, become a hunting guide in Maine. He just retired from the military, and um, he was familiar with my dogs from another uh, retired military guy that he hunted with uh, who has some of my dogs. And the uh, guy came over, and many years ago, he worked for a short hair breeder who had like 50 dogs in the kennel all the time and, and field trials with them and stuff. And... Uh, he spent the morning with me. We went out in the woods and, and ran dogs. And then we came back here and worked in the bird field and did some work on the training table and all that sort of stuff. And we got to lunchtime and he said, I can't believe it. I said, can't believe what? He said, I was with you all morning and we worked 18 dogs or however many it was. And you never swore. You never raised your voice. You never <laughs> screamed at anybody. You never hit any dogs. And I said, you don't have to do that stuff. You know, these dogs, they need to be shown what to do. They need some sort of correction when they know what they're supposed to do and they don't do it. But screaming at them doesn't help. You know, yelling woe louder isn't going to make them woe better than if you don't scream it. Right. So it's just, it's very important. I mean, and a lot of dogs are a lot more sensitive than people think. And, you know, if, if you get heavy handed and loud and, uh, lose your temper and it's going to impact the dog. So look at what the dog did. You analyze what the dog did and analyze how to correct it. It's a job. It's a hobby. It's a whatever. It's not, you know, life or death or something that you need to scream and yell about. And also with dog behavior and the timing of corrections, you know, I've come to learn the timing is so important and that by the time an amateur like myself realizes that something has gone wrong and we want to, you know, correct the dog or something. Oftentimes we've missed that window of opportunity. So really that's a great example to just let it go. How can you prevent it next time? And how can you set the dog up for success better the next time? Exactly. Exactly. 
and that timing thing is, is so important. And I, I know some other professional trainers who would make fun of the fact that whenever there's a picture of one of my dogs on the internet, uh, the dog is dragging a rope. Um, even my adult dogs, um, and they don't need it, but they drag it anyways. And that's just because that's my handle. If I need to get a hold of them, it's a lot easier to grab the rope. You know, I'm, I'm training a bunch of dogs, so I, I always have somebody here to help me. I hire, I've been very fortunate. I had one high school kid that worked for me for three summers and he's off to college and got a real job. And he recruited, uh, one of his younger friends to work for me this summer. So, you know, I always have that extra set of hands so that, that we can set the dogs up to succeed, as you said. Have you been able to get the new guy's name right yet, Craig? Uh, I still call him John once in a while. I did follow, I, if you watch the video closely, I, I, I apologized to him during Paul's video. You um, did, you did. Because I called him John during that because I was distracted. You know, yeah. I was paying attention to Paul and not Brian. Yeah, so. I'm being facetious, of course, and if listeners check I, out the videos, they'll know you. You you called him the other guy that was with you for three years. You were calling him the other name, but it was it was funny. Right. All right. Moving on. Chapter four is is introducing the e caller. Something I pulled out of there. This is something that I've actually worked on, and I wanted to hear you talk a little bit more about it in depth. I've been doing it this year. You end training sessions, not necessarily just that, but getting dogs up on a bench or a plank like you have, where it's just like a two by six on its side. You're putting the dogs from a very young age, putting them up on a plank. This is something I've seen other trainers do. I've incorporated it a little bit in my training this year because my goals with it were calmness and getting the dog up off the ground on a, on a slim board to create a calm, relaxed behavior. And then you go on and talk about a dog looking you in the eyes, putting them at eye level. Talk about that exercise a little bit. Well, I'll quote something that Bob Whaley said. Bob Whaley had a lot of criteria for how he picked the dogs that he would breed on. And one of the criteria he said was important to him was he would not breed a dog that would not look him in the eye. And you know, it's something that, that uh, I took to heart. And uh, the dogs that won't look you in the eye are dogs that, you know, they're, they're looking for something else, like the, the exit door or something. I, I, yeah. mean, they're, they're, I don't want to say they're not trustworthy, but they're not as engaged with you as the dog that will look you in the eye. And so sometimes with a hesitant dog or a, or a really soft dog, uh, getting them up on that platform at eye level and not making a lot of noise, not saying a lot, not saying whoa, 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 or anything, just getting your hands on them, stroking them up, getting them calm, and then trying to make that eye contact will, I think, improve that relationship between you and the dog. It's a little different with me because I'm, you know, all my, all the dogs here except for one are, you know, 24 seven in the kennel unless they're out being worked. So they don't have that. You know, they do with their owners. The ones that, when they go home, they're on the couch and, and all that sort of stuff, which is fine. And it doesn't affect their ability to hunt. It doesn't affect their relationship with their training at, at all. But um, <clears throat> for that, it's really important for me to to establish that bond with the dogs. And, and being up on that bench is a place where we can do that. And so that's, that's one of the primary reasons we use that little bench with the smaller dogs. Now, when the dogs get big... That six inch 
you know, you put a 55-pound dog up on that six-inch board and he may have a little trouble keeping his balance and keeping his feet under him. So you might want a little more for a big adult dog. But for the little dogs, that's perfect. Sure. All right. Moving on to Chapter 5, this is where some, some fun stuff starts. Intro to birds, guns, launchers, bells, etc., Something I pulled out of there was staunchness and steadiness. What is the difference, Craig? Because they are different. Sure. Um, in the definition in, in the bird dog world that I function in, a, a staunch dog is a dog that is going to stand on point until you get to it. It is probably, for a grouse hunter, the most important aspect they need to build in their dog because we need to let our dogs hunt at their a reasonable but their natural range. If you've got a dog that wants to go out a hundred yards and then quarter back and forth, he's gonna eat he's gonna cover a lot more territory than the dog that's only going twenty five yards. At the same time the dog that goes out a hundred yards or a hundred and I had one today at a hundred and thirty five yards, uh and I it's pretty thick right now and I had to go uphill through a lot of stuff to get to him. So it took me a little bit. He needs to be staunch. He needs to stand there and wait for me to get there. He knows I'm coming. We've done it many times. But that's what staunchness is, waiting for me to get there and giving me the opportunity to flush the bird or in the season shoot at the bird. And I do mean shoot at. Um, we kill birds, but we shoot at a lot more than we kill. Yep. <laughs> uh, and so that's staunchness. Steadiness is the polish that we expect in field trials and I argue should be everybody's expectation for their dog. Steadiness is once you get to the dog, flush the bird and shoot the gun, the dog is still standing there and does not leave until you release him. And there's lots of people that will argue lots of reasons why they like their dog to leave. You know, they're going to find the bird quicker if they can leave, if we shot it and all sorts of things like that. They don't want to walk back and release the dog. The argument goes on and on. Yep. But that dog, that steady dog, steady to wing and shot, is, you know, that's really the ultimate team player. He's done his part. He's letting you do yours. He's not going to break and interfere. He's never going to be in the line of shot. You're never going to have to pull off a bird because he's underneath it, jumping up, trying to catch it. And, you know, it's just, Aesthetically, the penultimate behavior for a pointing dog in the woods or anywhere else. It's cool uh, when we go to Kansas now to see a dog standing out in the middle of the prairie and you walk in and 20 quail going every which way and you look back and that dog is still standing there just like a statue. Uh, You know, two or three guys have tried to hit birds out of the covey and he doesn't go until you say so. So that's the difference. Staunchness is waiting for you to flush. Steadiness is is staying put after the flush. Got it. And so you are a grouse guide, and oftentimes, you know, grouse guides, when you have clients out hunting over your dogs, the steadiness factor, because again, like you said, there are many, we all hear it around the tailgate, you know, water cooler, wherever. We have these conversations and people talk about how they like their dogs to be as far as steadiness, and that might just be steady to wing or or not at all. Um, so we've all heard it, but I get the sense from you that, you know, you work your dogs to be steady to wing shot fall, and the safety aspect comes into play when you have other people out. It's just a safer environment for a dog to be when you have other people shooting. Exactly. 
The other thing you talk about in the book, which I think is, I want to bring this up because as somebody that went through training their first bird dog within the last five years, and I read a lot, you read somebody talk about steady to wing shot and fall. And then you get out in the field and you realize that dogs are not robots and they all are individuals and they behave differently. And it's, it doesn't always happen just like the way the text was written on the pages of the paper, right? Well, you acknowledge that a dog, a dog might be steady to wing shot and fall on a pigeon, but that doesn't mean that you're going to take him out in the woods and he's going to replicate that behavior. It doesn't mean that the dog won't backslide or regress throughout the season. That is a normal thing that happens to your dogs and our dogs. Talk about that a little bit, Craig. Well, it's, it's, it's normal because there are so many things going on when you're hunting. When you're training, your focus is 100% on the dog. And, you know, you got the release for the remote in your hand. You control when that bird goes. You control where that bird is. Everything is under control. If anybody who's hunt, hunted grouse knows you're not in control. The grouse is. That's for uh, sure. <laughs> the grouse is going to walk. The grouse is going to fly. The grouse is going to disappear down a hole. You just don't know what's going to happen. I've been going to a dog on point quite literally be 25 yards away and look in the underbrush and see the grouse running away from the dog towards me. And I know it's the grouse for the dog because it's a direct line. He's, you know, uh, I, I've got my garment in my hand and the arrow's pointing at the dog and it's also pointing at the grouse that's got its head down and is running right at me. So, um, you know, we don't have control then. And so in the moment, without the control, stuff happens. And if I'm getting ready for the Grand National, which is late in the year, it's the first Tuesday in November, so it's at the end of the season. I'm, I'm, I'm literally, the last 10 days before the event, I'm not guiding. I probably won't even carry a shotgun. I'm just tuning my dogs back up for competition because some of them will never break shot the whole season, and some of them will. Uh, they'll see the bird fall, and they'll want to go pick it up, and they just can't help themselves. So when we're getting ready to to compete with them, we'll spend some time tuning them up. Cool. All right, let's talk about, we talked staunchness. That's a dog finding a bird, pointing it, and remaining staunch or on point until you arrive. Steadiness, that's the polish, like you said. Let's talk about bumped birds, ripped birds, and stop to flush, and kind of your thoughts on that and how you work that into training and building a grouse dog. Uh. Let's talk about the difference between a bump bird and a rip bird. Perfect. Uh, it's a very subtle distinction, and it's often hard to discern what happened. So you know, you really got to be you got to be paying attention. And, and uh, I talk in the book about keeping the young dogs in closer. We're not letting them go 150 yards and finding a bird because we won't know what happened. A bump bird is a bird that the dog didn't know was there. Uh, he's on the wrong side of the wind. Um, usually, uh, when he bumps one, where the bird has recently been moving a lot and the scent is minimal, or, or you just get some days where the scenting conditions, they're terrible, and the dog just can't sort it out. In those instances, the dog has bumped the bird unintentionally, as opposed to ripping out a bird where the dog realizes there's a bird there and rather pointing, which is what you're, what it's genetically programmed to do and what you've been reinforcing in all your training, and he just goes in and knocks it and 
chases it. So what we try to do is teach stop to flush, which is if a bird is flying in your vicinity, you being the dog, you stop and stand. It's a, an extension of woe, which is stop and stand there until I tell you to do something else. And so basically a stop to flush is woe triggered by the flushing of the bird. And we reinforce that with pigeons. We throw pigeons at dogs. Uh, we'll have them working in the yard and throw a pigeon, woe them. When they're little, we do it on a check cord. When they're older, uh, we might transition to a belly band. Some dogs, we might even use the collar on their neck. It all it varies depending on the dog and what their tolerance for correction is. And that's another thing you have to always pay attention to how much correction and what correction works best for your dog as opposed to the next dog or the last dog you had versus the dog you've got now. So the stop to flush, once that's ingrained, uh, can be reinforced in the woods. And with the bump bird, the stop to flush is not that hard because the dog knows he made a mistake and he stops and waits. And there really shouldn't be a lot of correction because he didn't do anything wrong. He did everything right. When you have a dog that's ripping birds, intentionally flushing the birds and chasing them, then you have to uh, figure out why he's doing it and how he's doing it. And I think I give the example in the book of a dog that was doing it on Woodcock and stopping to flush after they bumped the bird. Right, yeah. They were taking and them out, but then stopping. Yep. Right, because they realized, the dog realized, she realized, that if she stopped to flush, she wasn't going to get corrected. And so she, uh, we saw, I saw pretty quickly in the process that, that what she was doing is she was smelling the bird, turning, going to the bird until it flushed, which she liked to do. She liked to see him fly. And then once it flew, she stopped to flush and they're wagging her tail all happy, like, look at me, I stopped the flush like I'm supposed to. And she just needed, you know, to be indoctrinated with a belly band and watch her carefully. And when she made that turn into the scent to go bump the bird, and not without a woe command, just with the belly band, just to stop, it didn't take long to, to get her corrected. So, you know, the bumping part you can correct and you need to correct. The ripping part you need to correct. The bumping part, um, the dog usually will stop the flush because they know they made a mistake. And most of them don't want to make mistakes. Most of them want to do it right. Yeah, I'm glad you approached it that way because that was that subtle distinction is what I wanted to I wanted you to talk about because that was another one of those things that again for somebody that's just coming into this fresh as I was not a handful of years ago, it's a subtle distinction, but it's a very important one, and it's something that. Somebody that doesn't have a lot of experience watching bird dogs work birds, you're going to have a hard time making that distinction. Now, I've seen my dog and other dogs point enough birds and work enough birds over the last five years that I feel much more confident today in analyzing that. But that's those are important pieces, and, and it's important that you sort of do the right thing at those various junctures in the development of a dog. And... I guess I'd be curious on your thoughts. I, I'm I'm going to assume that, say you have a young dog out in the woods and he's working and you don't know whether he bumped or ripped a bird, what would be the appropriate response, Greg? Uh, catch him, set him up, make him stand. Okay. I mean, it, it's, it's the same response in either case. Got it. Because uh, what you want them to, to realize is that 
when they find scent, they stop. Uh, when they find a bird, they stop. And you don't have to be over, you know, you don't have to overcorrect them in the beginning. Um, if they continue to do it and ignore the correction, then the correction level has to increase in, in one way or another. But you have to be consistent. And you get a hold of them, you make them stand as close to the spot where it happened as possible, and you're consistent, and you do it over and over and over again. And, you know, all these dogs are bred to point. They're going to point. Uh, it's just a question of when it's all going to come together and how you, what you can do to help them get there faster. Okay, so one more follow-up question on that. Do you ever get to the point... I mean, I think I'm pretty, I understand like a puppy's first season. One thing that we want to be very careful of is we're not going to shoot when the, when the pup makes a mistake, we're not going to necessarily overcorrect them or correct them at all, but we're not going to reward with a shot, a bird that's handled improperly with the stop to flush thing down the road. You ever get to a point where if a dog bumps a bird and stops to flush and you're there to see it all, will you shoot at that bird or will you just forever not shoot at those birds? I would be more likely to shoot it with the puppy. Oh, you would? Yeah. To reward As, that proper behavior. Yeah. I, I, I would never shoot it with an, uh, uh, an adult dog. Got it. I, I never shoot a bird that isn't pointed okay. with my adult dogs. With little puppies, the puppy's first season, if I've got a dog that's nine months old and that puppy is involved with the bird, realizes the bird there, is turned towards the bird, flash points the bird, uh, we have a saying, if it flies, it dies. And, and we, we try to make that happen with puppies because we want them excited. We want them, uh, getting feathers in their mouths. We want them looking for those birds. And I mean, nothing excites a puppy like a dead bird. And so I, I don't, if it was a puppy that was a year old that I thought was close to being staunch, I wouldn't do that. If it's a, six or seven month old puppy and you know not really staunch yet starting to point consistently on pigeons i'm gonna i'm gonna roll them if i can yeah and the the guys that and i I don't bring those dogs out for clients so but the guys that hunt with me when we take the puppies out they know um they they run to the dog when it stops and you know if the bird gets up before they get there they're throwing lead so we uh, we want to put some birds on the ground for those little puppies. Got it. That is a good thing to go over. And I can recall my first season with my dog where I I didn't know what to expect, to be honest. You know, And I think that's somewhat – I read a lot, but I probably didn't ask enough questions to the breeder of my dog, who's a very knowledgeable guy, and he always – he walked me through when I did ask him questions. But I had this weird – you know, I would go out and my dog was very young. He was two or three months old and he flash pointed a couple of woodcock and, but kept, kept moving and the bird got up. And I remember, I distinctively remember not shooting those birds. Cause I'm thinking, Oh, you didn't point them staunchly. You know, I, I can't shoot those birds, but in hindsight, I now realize that there were a lot more birds that first season I could have shot for him. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, and I, I, we don't give the puppies the opportunities that we're going to shoot, you know, a boatload of, birds for them but if we take them into a woodcock cover and and there's some birds there you know uh we want to put some on the ground for them yeah uh you know we're not going to hunt that puppy all day and you know shoot three limits of woodcock over them but it helps the puppy 
get excited and realize why we're out there. Yeah. All right, Craig. So I'm quickly realizing there's no way we're going to be able to get through all my notes here. I took too many of them, but that's that's a good thing because there's a lot in this book. And again, the whole point of this podcast was to give people a taste of what is in the book, Get let them get to know you a little bit and kind of hear some of your methodologies. There's a couple of things I want to hit on before I let you go, but one of them we've got to touch on because this is something that's of great interest to me. And I've asked a few people about it on the podcast before. You specifically mentioned in the book, uh, we're talking dogs running on wild birds, and you have a difference of approach whether you are training the dog or you are hunting the dog. And so I'm most concerned with when you're hunting with the dog, actually bird hunting, and you want to get the best opportunity at a shot for a grouse or a woodcock, how do you approach that point? And then we can talk about you know, why you do it a little bit differently when you're training. Okay, um, let's talk about it if, as if I'm hunting with with one of my experienced hunting buddies, as opposed to with clients, because it's sure. it's very sure. different. You know, if 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 I'm hunting with a friend and we got a dog down, uh, we both got the dog on our watches because we're we're technophiles. Yep. yep. Uh, and we don't even talk to each other. The the watch buzzes. And we know how staunch our dogs are. We both head for the dog. I'm left-handed. Most of my friends are right-handed. I shoot right to left easier than I shoot left to right and vice versa. And I always go to the left side of the dog. He always goes to the right side of the dog. We find the dog. We don't stop, which is the biggest problem I have with with my guiding clients. They see the dog and they stop. Yep. Uh, We go in front of the dog and we keep going. We might go... 15 yards, we might go 30 yards, depending on the cover. And uh, if we don't get the bird up, um, we might even go even further, depending on the time of season. Because the later we get in the season, the more they run, uh, the more open it is on the ground, and and the less likely they are to hunker down. So uh, no talking, no, not a lot of, of signaling. We know what our position is. Uh, you know, we all wear enough orange, so we know we, we can see each other, and, and we just go and and do our thing. When I'm training, I'm by myself. I got a blank pistol. Uh, the last thing on my mind is killing a bird. I'll go in front of the dog. I might go 10 yards in front of the dog. If I don't get the bird up, I go back to the dog and release it, even if I'm pretty sure there's a bird in the vicinity. It's a perfect opportunity for me to teach that dog how to relocate because uh, grouse will run, and if a dog is very good at relocation, you're going to get more opportunities on birds. So you have to reinforce that and give the dog opportunities to do that. And so that's probably the biggest difference. Um, I'll make a quick flushing attempt in, in front of the dog. I'll look at the cover and see if there's a spot, I think, where the where a grouse might be or a woodcock, and I'll go there and, and flush. And if I don't get the bird up, I go back, tap the dog, and let the dog find it. And that's... Uh, you know, that's the primary difference between training and hunting that, you know, I, I think about. Um, when we're training, we're, we are. We're training. We're giving the dog opportunities to point birds. We give the dog's opportunity to relocate on birds. We give the dog opportunities to move up and make a mistake so we can correct them. When we're hunting, we're, we're pushing hard to get those birds in the air because we don't shoot them on the ground, and chances are we don't see them on the ground anyhow. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. 
so you know that's that's the name of the game. Get that bird in the air, uh, and the only way you do that is to to push hard and get in front of the dog and and push out. And you know, the more you do it, the more the more you understand that that distance you have to go in front of the dog may be much more than you think. Yeah, because those little birds can really book it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a that's a great way to put it, and that's it's informational to me. I never thought about it in that way in the sense of making a shorter flushing attempt while I'm training for the simple fact of, Hey, let's give my dog another opportunity to relocate and re and rework this bird. Yep. Exactly. Very cool. Well, Craig, we talked for 80 minutes or so and we barely scratched the surface. So I think that speaks highly of the book. Uh, we don't have an official rating system on the Project Tuffin podcast, but I give it two big thumbs up. Most listeners know I'm a very big, uh, rough grouse hunter. I hunt with a pointy dog. So this book is certainly very appealing to me. I enjoyed it. There's a ton here. You go into, you talk about, you know, again, the first season in the woods, the second training season, the spring following the dog's first hunting season. You go into the second season, the dog's second hunting season, and then all of the training steps that get you, again, from a puppy to a polished performer. And at the end of the book, you you talk about grouse and grouse cover. You talk about shotguns, gear. Again, there's so much here for even somebody that is, they just want to learn more about hunting grouse. I mean, I would recommend this book. There's there is plenty to chew on, plenty to read about. You talk about first aid, traveling with dogs, pigeon coops, quail pens. There's actually 16 chapters. I think I messed that up earlier, but it's a great book. I encourage people to check it out. Where is the best place that somebody could go to find out more information on the book, Craig? Uh, if they want to get a signed copy from me, uh, they can go to my webpage, wildapplekennel.com. And on the banner on the top, it says Building a Grouse Dog. Just click on that. We've got an e-commerce site set up. Uh, they can pay with credit card, and we'll ship the book out. And uh, if they want me to personalize an inscription in the book, I'm more than willing to do that, too. So I even had one guy, I, I, I almost didn't do it, but then I said, oh, what the heck. He said, uh, could you inscribe the before you sign it to the best grouse hunter and grouse dog in the world? <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and I, I said, huh. But I did it. I was, you know, what the heck? Um, <laughs> if that's what he wanted the, the world of how he views himself, I'm, yeah. I'm happy to contribute. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. Maybe, uh, maybe he's got a friend that he thinks highly of, or he thinks highly of himself, or maybe it's just a joke. But either way, I think that's. Uh, no, I, I think it was for him. <laughs> <laughs> well, you heard it here first, listeners. I mean, definitely, who wouldn't want Craig to sign the book? You might as well just go to go to wildapplekennel.com and and order it right there. Sure, we'd appreciate it. Well, Craig, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Your 30 years of grouse hunting and bird dog experience is very evident. I encourage everybody to go check out the book if they're interested in it. It's a great read. I, I really enjoyed it, and thank you for sending me the copy, Craig. I wish you the best of luck this hunting and training season, and uh, hope to talk to you in the future. All right, Craig? I look forward to it. Thanks, Craig. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Project Upland podcast presented by Onyx Hunt. The podcast is also brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Dogs Your Collars, Yukonuba Premium Performance Dog Food, Gumleaf USA, Gordian Sons Outfitters, and Dakota 283 Kennels. 
Don't forget to leave us a rating, leave us a review, subscribe to the podcast, and share the podcast post. You could be next week's winner of the Project Dublin podcast giveaway. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.